You may have heard of the newest financial action task force guidelines from this past summer, which include new anti-money laundering standards as well as the travel rule. It seems the crypto industry is sweating and gnashing its collective teeth trying to figure out the next move, and the deadline for compliance is rapidly approaching. No one's really explaining the whole story about these guidelines, and countries are still trying to sort out compliance and regulation concerns. That's why we're excited to welcome David Carlisle to the show. He's a former U.S. Department of the Treasury's Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence, and he's now leading the education effort around regulations at Elliptic. They've got some really cool blockchain analytics. Then you'll hear from John Wolf with Raccoon. Raccoon's an entertainment platform utilizing blockchain to connect to the gaming world while deriving real-world value from playing. Think crypto kitties with pigs that race. So do your laundry, but make sure there isn't money left in your pants because this is an anti-money laundering episode peppered with a good amount of fun and bacon. Welcome, friends. To the Republic of Bad Cryptopia, where you are now present for episode number 336 of the Bad Crypto Podcast. around the world and under the sea because fish like listening to crypto podcasts as well it's the bad crypto podcast with myself i'm joel and And with himself and me yeah him myself and i travis greetings earthlings welcome to the podcast and we're glad that you're here it is a packed packed show that has got some really serious content and some more um what's the word i'm looking for less serious just fun content yeah that's true but what starts out it sounds really serious it sounds almost like a movie series or like the 18 where the financial action task force financial action task force and it's like they come in and they do this stuff but then the acronym of that is fat f and he kept saying fat f i'm like what why are you calling me a fat app for and so that was not very nice in the middle of the show i was like why you got to be rude i don't know we've got a You're gentleman joel <laughs> we've got a gentleman who has uh, worked at the u.s department of treasury and i was like my dad in- growing up shut up fat app <laughs> we're not gonna get through the show are we <laughs> Anyhow, we'll get to the content in just a moment. But first, let you guys know that our sponsor for this episode is eToro. And if you want to trade and be smart about your trading by now, certainly you have downloaded the eToro app, right? Right? Now, if you're in Europe, you've had this platform for a long time, but it's brand new to these United States of America, not those United States, these here, United States of America. They give you access to the most popular crypto assets on the market. They've got virtual trading, discussion features, and a killer community, and newest of all, the copy trading feature. So you can go see how other traders are succeeding and failing. And you might want to follow the ones who succeed. Basically, you copy their portfolio and say, well, I want to copy their portfolio with $100. And it'll 
divvy up that $100 with the same percentages that they have in their portfolio. And at any time, you can say, okay, I'm done with that, and I'm going to trade on my own now. Anyway, you can get $25 in free Bitcoin from the Bad Crypto Podcast when you follow the simple instructions you will find for opening a new account in the U.S. at badco.in forward slash eToro. That's B-A-D-C-O dot I-N forward slash eToro. Mr. Travis Wright, we've got a lot of content today, so I say we get right into you being a fat F. So very nice, Mr. Jokom. I've heard of the traveling Wilburys. When I was going to church, people talked about having traveling mercies, and now it's the traveling cryptos. Sounds like a band, doesn't it, Travis? It does. This is pretty exciting. We're, we're going to learn how to launder Bitcoin today. <laughs> no, no, that's not what we're going to oh. do. We're we're going to talk <laughs> about <laughs> we're going to talk about how there are those out there that are doing it, but how governments are seeking to put regulation in place to squash money laundering and with us today we have somebody who is an expert money launder no no he's not he's he's actually fought money laundering he's the head of community at elliptic.co but he used to work for the u.s department of the treasury's office of terrorism and financial intelligence his name is david carlisle he's probably regretting this but he's here anyway <laughs> david welcome to bad crypto uh, thanks for having me guys yeah, absolutely tell us a little bit about your your background with uh, the u.s department of the treasury yeah so well after i finished college and all that good stuff i, I wound up going to work at as you mentioned before the u.s department of the treasury's office of terrorism and financial intelligence which um is really kind of the the hub of all things uh, policy related in the U.S. government when it comes to trying to find ways to stop criminals and other illicit actors from abusing the U.S. financial system. So uh, the office is responsible for setting uh, not only broad U.S. policy when it comes to anti-money laundering and things like financial sanctions, um, but also looking to understand how it can kind of use all the levers that the U.S. government has at its disposal to um, potentially isolate threats from the U.S. financial system, whether it's uh, countries like North Korea and, and attempts they're making to finance their development of weapons of mass destruction or terrorist actors. Um, so it was a pretty cool experience. Uh, I got to learn quite a lot. And um, that that was actually back well before I even knew what Bitcoin was, and really in the very, very early days of Bitcoin. Uh, and after my time in government, I went and, and started working as an independent consultant, advising companies across the financial sector on how to comply with anti-money laundering requirements. Somewhere along the line, uh, I started hearing from cryptocurrency companies that are saying, uh, regulators are telling us we need to comply with anti-money laundering law. Can you help us figure out how to do that? And so uh, the beginning of my plummeting down the crypto rabbit hole and uh, <laughs> with, with more time, uh, more and more of my time became spent on uh, Kind of being at this intersection of of crypto and this uh, you know this new technology and where it meets regulation, and I eventually made my way to Elliptic, which is a provider of blockchain analytics solutions that help cryptocurrency businesses comply with their anti money laundering regulatory requirements. So, so this is very interesting. Now, when when did would you say that the department that you were at at the U.S. government when did they start really you know understanding crypto or start hearing about crypto or start you know, starting to be concerned about it? 
it was actually probably around the time I was on my way out the door. I think it's sort of uh, 2011, 2012, which, uh, you know, as you're probably aware, is around the time of the takedown of the Silk Road, you know, which is the dark web marketplace that was using Bitcoin to, uh, you know, enable vendors of illicit products and drugs and all sorts of other stuff to do that online in, in ways that had, had not been done before, certainly not at that scale. And, you know, there's, there's you know, tons of information out, about, out there about the investigation that went into that and, and the work the FBI did with other U.S. law enforcement agencies to take down the Silk Road. But that, I think, was really the point at which U.S. regulators sat up and started paying attention to Bitcoin, even if there had maybe been some awareness that it existed. And, you know, the concept of virtual currencies more broadly wasn't something that was totally new. You'd had things like e-gold and Liberty Reserve and uh, you know, other forms of electronic payment that had been, you know, on the U.S. government's radar for some time. But this notion of a fully decentralized payments technology that had no central authority that you could take down, uh, it, you know, where crime was occurring, is certainly a very new concept. And the Silk Road was a, really put it on the map. And in uh, 2013, uh, not too long after that, uh, the, the Silk Road case, the uh, U.S. Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN as it's called, which is part of the U.S. Treasury, issued fairly comprehensive guidance setting out how U.S. anti-money laundering laws applied to virtual currencies and to things like Bitcoin exchanges. And, that, and really, that's the point from which you know players in the crypto ecosystem started, were effectively covered for regulatory purposes when it came to, to the, having requirements to apply anti-money laundering laws. You know, you brought up Silk Road. And, and I want to talk about that for a moment. You know, of course, Ross Ulbrook is uh, serving a double life sentence plus, what is it, 40 years at no, you know, no chance of parole. Yeah, obviously, you're not representing the government right now, but I'm curious what your personal thoughts are on that sentence. I mean, there's no question that's about as harsh as it comes. I mean, you know, I, I think you know, whether it's proportionate to the, the scale of the crime, I, I don't really know. I, clearly, a, a jury of his peers and a judge determined that it was. You know, I, I think there's no question that there was an attempt to send a message there uh, in that case, which was that the U.S. government just was not going to have tolerance for anyone seeking to use these new technologies for nefarious purposes. So uh, unquestionably harsh, but uh, he, he had the misfortune of being a pioneer in uh in in using these technologies in a new way and, and getting caught and so uh, you know there's no question that the u.s government you know made a made an example of him yeah. i'm just gonna say freeross.org and leave that right there <laughs> there you go pioneers typically are the ones that get the arrows in the back especially with with new technologies they're the ones out there you know paving the way for other future innovators and you know from you having from you being on both sides of the fence, right? So you were you were there where you were sort of uh, watching people who were doing nefarious stuff, and now you're on the other side where you're consulting people. So what they do is legal and within in the framework of what's going on. It's it's been an interesting journey. So we've just seen that you know Ross, he was one of the first guys. There is no, it's totally decentralized. There's no Bitcoin HQ, and so maybe the maybe the uh, the jurors and the judge were like ah. We want to make sure all this digital currency, you know, is is deemed bad. We want to make sure we kind of scare people off. Is uh, wh where do you see where do you see this going? Because when you have a decentralized scenario, there is nobody that you can go after. Is this something that you think that that over time 
you know, the government has thought about how to shut it down and they realize they can't shut it down. And because we're seeing in America right now a drain of innovation because a lot of these companies that are building stuff in blockchain are saying, "Eh, I'm getting out of here. America is being, you know, a little too tight fisted. I got to go. We're going to Malta. We're going to Singapore. We're going to Gibraltar. They're leaving America. Like, what is what is this the current state as you see it, knowing what we know now and where we've been and where we're headed? I mean, it seems like there was a brain drain that's happening and it's not going to be beneficial to America down the road. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think for the large part, you know, most policymakers and regulators are very practical and that I don't think, you know, maybe in the early days of Bitcoin, you, you'd hear calls for shut it down or ban it completely. And, you know, th- there are some parts of the world where that happen. But I think in most of the major financial sectors, you know, governments realize that uh, technology is here, it's here to stay. Uh, They can't just go and, you know, arrest Satoshi Nakamoto or anything like that, or or shut him down. And I don't think there's any desire to do that. And I don't, I don't think regulators see there would see much benefit in that. I I do think regulators see certain uh, positive components of the technology and what it's offering. I mean, it's very interesting when you look at sort of the, uh, the response to Libra, you know, the, the Facebook um, announcement mm-hmm. that it'll launch its own cryptocurrency. And, you know, regulators have made very, very clear that they won't allow that to launch uh, without the appropriate regulatory approvals. But, you know, there's a difference there in which it is it is a more centralized project. They have potentially more oversight of it. Um, but even as regulators look at Libra and the potential challenges it posed for them, they're starting to think and say now, well, maybe we need to use this as our own spur to innovation and think about, do we need to be digitizing how we provide uh, central banking services and thinking about things like uh, issuing our own you know, digital currencies at the, the central bank level? And so, you know, I think it's a much I think it is a very complicated issue for regulators. And I think they are making a genuine attempt to uh, really think very carefully about, you know, how to strike the appropriate balance between you know, the responsibilities on the one hand to kind of protect the integrity of the financial system. And the second, you know, how do we not uh, stomp out innovation? How do we make sure it's kind of channeled for useful purposes? And and it's, you know, it's been an ongoing balancing act. You know, I, I think, though, um, certainly, I think there's a perception and a, a growing perception that as the just the amount of crypto activity grows, that, you know, this is not an issue that's just sort of a niche problem anymore. It's, it's you know, something with growing implications for the, the mainstream financial sector. Um, and so regulators are paying a lot more attention. I mean, it's interesting you brought up the Silk Road case because at the time Silk Road was going on, I mean, you know, it was, I think there were billions of, of dollars worth of transactions going on through the Silk Road. But, you know, by comparison to what happens now, it's actually smaller. And so, you know, I guess you know, maybe to your original, there's a point, there's some question around, did it have an actual deterrent effect um, in terms of the, the sentencing that was cast down. Um, certainly, we've seen some dark marketplaces have gotten larger, uh, though a lot of them have been shut down now um, by law enforcement agencies, things like Alphabay. But, you know, as, especially as countries like North Korea start and look to exploit cryptocurrencies, uh, regular t- regulators take that extremely seriously. Um, so, you know, I, I think... I really don't think there is an attempt to to shut this down or keep it from happening. And, and the emphasis of regulation, I think it's important to note, is really about maintaining oversight of certain players in the ecosystem rather than trying to control the decentralized technology. So thinking about you know um, who's providing services, whether it's exchanges or Bitcoin ATM providers, 
and making sure they're regulated, the sort of gateways to the decentralized ecosystem that are maybe centralized points where a regulator can have oversight. Um, and there's a lot of debate about whether that is sufficient, whether it's effective, whether there maybe need to be other regulatory responses that account for the decentralized nature of crypto that haven't existed in the mainstream financial sector. So all of those debates are things that are happening you know, in policy fora among policymakers all over the world at the moment. You know, and I, I don't necessarily see that as uh, hindering innovation in, insofar as, you know, look, there are new cryptocurrencies being and new tokens being launched all the time. Um, and much as, you know, regulators may be uncomfortable with some of these concepts, I, I think they realize they can't stop it. And they certainly couldn't stop it, um, which is, you know, here and alive and doing pretty well uh, 10 years. Yeah, but some of those companies, there's a lot what we're seeing because we've interviewed a lot of folks. I mean, I think with our almost 400 total episodes that we've had, we've, and we've interviewed maybe 200, 250 different ICO projects or blockchain projects. And the majority of them are not in America. And the ones that were started in America have, are leaving America. And then there's companies like Bittrex and some of the stuff that's going on up in Seattle and Dragon Chain. Dragon Chain essentially got killed by SEC regulations. And, you know, so a lot of these companies, I'm not saying that they're just scared and they're not going to build them because they are. They're just not building them in America, what we're, what yeah. we're, seeing, what we're seeing. And I think, you know, there there is a there's a question there, I guess, for U.S. policymakers as to you know, what the right balance is for them. You know, the U.S. is, as I mentioned, they're they actually been much further ahead than a lot of the rest of the world in terms of implementing any regulation at all. And for a long time, there has been, you know, as you sort of describe it, maybe arbitrage where, um, you know, companies look to those parts of the world where there is little or no regulation. Um, what we're starting to see, though, for the first time now, you know, several years after the U.S. first took steps to implement regulation around crypto is, I think, a growing recognition that that uh, ability to engage in regulatory arbitrage is a major problem. Um, something we may get into a little bit more as the podcast goes on, but earlier this year, the Financial Action Task Force, which is sort of the global standard-setting body uh, for all things anti-money laundering related and sort of sets out what countries should be doing when it comes to anti-money laundering related, sort of looked at the state of things and said, you know, guys, it's it's not acceptable that only a few countries have any regulation in place around crypto. Uh, you know, the size of, of uh, trading is just too large now for us all to ignore this. Uh, the nature of the threats with countries like North Korea potentially exploiting the use of cryptocurrencies is potentially too severe for, for there to be this fragmented regulatory approach all over the world. And so, now we are seeing some countries, including some of those countries I think you mentioned, um, are under increasing pressure or, or even voluntarily starting to institute their own regulatory frameworks that I think maybe are going to make it more difficult for countries to just say, up, companies to just up and leave a place like the US and go elsewhere and expect that they're going to just be you know, given a totally open door without any, any standards in place. So I certainly think the picture in cha is changing uh, insofar as you know, regulators aren't just willing to give the industry a free pass on the basis that it is new and young. And now that the industry has been around for some time, regulators want to see crypto companies operating a little bit more like traditional financial businesses. Okay, so you know, you set the stage for that. The, uh, the U.S. Department, the Financial Action Task Force, otherwise known as FATF. The worst acronyms come out of the government, I tell you. Yeah. So they've got new guidelines and uh, travel rules 
that are designed to combat money laundering and maybe some other things. So why don't you go ahead and kind of drill down for us and hit us with the bullet points of what these new guidelines are and what they mean? Sure. So uh, I guess just for background's sake, the, the Financial Action Task Force, or the FATF, or the FATF as it's, as it's sometimes called, uh, is a intergovernmental standard-setting body that was founded in 1989 by the G7, by the U.S., and a number of other countries to set out broad standards for how countries should go about applying anti-money laundering regulation within their own jurisdiction so that there's some harmony internationally. And, you know, this is on the basis that, uh, you know, money can move across borders quite easily. Um you know, probably easier now in 2019 than it ever was before. But money can flow sort of faster than regulators can keep up. So there needs to be some effort to have consistent standards from country to country in terms of how countries set up their anti-money laundering regulations, some reference to minimal standards that they should have in place. And so the FATF has existed for, yeah, I mean, uh, essentially 30 years, Uh, you know, has addressed a a wide range of issues from things like terrorist financing to you know, the illicit financing related to WMD proliferation, uh, all sorts of topics. And uh, in 2015, uh, not too long after the U.S. issued its own guidance and, you know, a few years after the Silk Road case, um, the FATF said, you know, we've got to start looking a little more at virtual currencies and cryptocurrencies and things like Bitcoin because, you know, they're starting to make enough waves that we, we need to have some sort of a consistent response to it. And in 2015, the FATF issued guidance in which it basically said, you know, countries should go away and, and think about the problem, but it didn't really didn't really offer a kind of comprehensive response for what countries should do about things. Because I think regulators' understanding of crypto was still pretty immature in 2015. Last year, the United States took over the rotating presidency of the FATF and basically said, all right, you know, it's it's not good enough that we, the United States and Japan and just a few other countries have regulation in place around crypto. Uh, there are just too many places in the world where a company can set up and not have, you know, do it without any oversight at all. So there needs to be some really comprehensive framework to do that. And that needs to happen now. And so under the US presidency uh, in June of this year, the FATF issued very comprehensive guidance that basically sets out how countries should go a- about implementing anti-money laundering requirements when it comes specifically to crypto or as the FATF calls them, virtual assets. And that includes uh, a number of requirements, uh, the most controversial of which is, I guess we'll be talking about is, is something called the travel rule, but also basically says that, you know, if, if you are a regulator, no matter what country you are, uh, as long as you adhere to the FATF standards, which, you know, in effect, every country in the world purports to do, uh, you need to require that crypto businesses in your jurisdiction ask customers who they are, collect you know, due diligence documentation, uh, have some idea about what their customers are doing, uh, you know, can report illegality to law enforcement where they observe something illegal happening. So those requirements are now embedded in the, the FATF guidance and, uh, and standards and uh, really are, for the first time, there's kind of a blueprint for how basically globally countries can work to try and have have more robust anti-money laundering laws in place and regulation in place around cryptocurrency. Mm. Yeah, and the timeliness of this, you know, and having the chat with you is 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 right on too because last month 
Um, you know, there was that huge, there was that huge case where uh, Bitcoin was able to help track down this massive pedophile ring, right? And they were able to go through and 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 uh, identify. There was this huge, you know, child porn website, and they were able to track three hundred over three hundred pedophiles from various different countries. And they made a bunch of arrests. Now, is that sort of sort of how elliptic is like elliptic is working with financial institutions, working with governments to help them sort of track down nefarious behaviors? Is that is sort of what, what, what your, your business is set up to do? Yeah, exactly. So in effect, what we do is we provide cryptocurrency businesses with technical technological solutions that enable them to, in effect, follow the money, if you will, uh, of transactions on their platform to determine if there's potential exposure to illicit activity, potentially like the kind you described, but it could include all sorts of other things, whether it's terrorist financing or, uh, you know, a party related to North Korea or um, dark web marketplace or something like the WannaCry ransom attack. Um, and really uh, almost any type of illicit activity you could, you could imagine, we uh, enable cryptocurrency businesses to detect exposure to those risks. Uh, using our solutions, and we also do work with governments to that end. And Wait, I'm really curious on on a high level, how do you do that? Yeah, so we have um, a couple types of software, but we have uh, an anti money laundering compliance software, which cryptocurrency businesses can use to screen customer transactions and identify whether there may be connections to an illicit party. So, uh, as you may be aware, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners are aware, um, there's a common perception that cryptocurrencies are you know, totally anonymous and totally untraceable. And while it's certainly the case that there are some cryptocurrencies like Monero and other privacy coins that are, I would say, highly anonymous, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies like Ethereum are actually very, very traceable. And so, you know, it is possible to basically follow the flow of Bitcoin through the cryptocurrency ecosystem or through the Bitcoin ecosystem to see where that Bitcoin has interacted with an illicit entity like the Silk Road and to see where it winds up, uh, if it's gone to a cryptocurrency exchange or or other regulated business. So does that mean you're you know there's a database of bad actor addresses, known known addresses? Yeah. In effect, so we provide the capability for cryptocurrency businesses to monitor the flow of transactions, but then we also uh, attribute cryptocurrency addresses to um, specific illicit entities. So we undertake a very rigorous data collection process where we can determine that certain addresses are com- controlled by a dark web marketplace or a cyber criminal network. And we provide that information as part of our software solution so that an exchange, you know, Coinbase or others that are out there could see that, you know, uh, oh, those funds came from, you know, a, a, a hack. Uh, we're not going to let that person deposit those funds on our exchange. So, you know, exchanges are able to use that to basically protect themselves from exposure to illicit activity, which is really one of the fundamental premises of anti-money laundering uh, regulation. Well, if we identified them, like, wouldn't that be good to let them deposit their Bitcoin on that exchange and then snag it? Say, oh, we finally caught you, you dirty bastards. And then now we can we can confiscate their Bitcoin because if if. What what's happening is is you're identifying the bad actors, not bad not bad people like bad podcast people, but bad people doing bad things. And you're saying, hey, we could tell this was from a hack. 
yeah, go ahead and put it in our exchange and then we're going to immediately freeze it. Like, is there something in line with that? Because that would seem like if they're doing bad, we want to catch them and not allowing them to deposit the money seems counterintuitive because they're just going to uh, deposit it to another address that's not on the radar and then deposit into an exchange anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's, um, I mean, you know, that that sort of thing comes down to sort of case-by-case basis, but there are lots of instances where, you know, crypto companies will work closely with law enforcement to, to you know, ensure that af- assets are confiscated. So that doesn't definitely does happen, and you know, tools like ours enable them to, to do that. But it's an interesting point you make because um, one of the big debates going on at the moment is um, whether certain regulatory measures, like the travel rule, for instance, uh, actually potentially push some of the visibility we have around cryptocurrencies uh, you know, further under the radar. And one of the big debates that came out of the the FATF's guidance in June was do some of those measures actually potentially, like you say, maybe encourage criminals to send their funds to a non-custodial or you know wallet or to a decentralized exchange rather than to a more centralized intermediary who might be subject to regulation. So that's actually a big debate at the moment is you know, whether regulation is incentivizing the right behaviors. So, I mean, it, it is a good point. Are, do you, in your view, do you think the government is really scared of decentralized exchanges and privacy coins? I mean, is Monero and Zcash and Apollo, are they truly unstoppable? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of debate and discussion out there as to whether privacy coins are, or could become traceable, uh, you know, at, at the moment, you know, the types of services we provide don't apply to those coins. You know, a, a lot of debate around that. I think um, certainly the the perception of governments is, I, I suppose, you know, one thing people tend to, uh, an analogy people tend to make between privacy coins and is to cash. You know, they say, well, what's the, what's the difference really? You know, um, cash is highly anonymous and, you know, I can go to my bank, withdraw draw a bunch of cash or take it out of the ATM and the government has no idea where that went. You know, what's what's really different between that and privacy coins? And at a certain level, you know, there, there is some similarity, but the real distinction I think that governments see is the fact that cryptocurrency is not only decentralized, but cross-border. You can uh, access the technology from anywhere in the world. I could send my funds from, uh, you know, where I'm sitting here to you guys back in in London, to you guys back in the States. Uh, without any sort of centralized intermediary. And the fact that privacy coins enable users to do that in a way that really doesn't offer any traceability and, and allows that kind of seamless flow across borders, I think is is a significant for, concern for regulators. Um, even if, Well, in cash, moment, cash is serial numbered, right? Each one is like its own NFT, right? It is uh, not, it, it, but you can't tell the difference between one Monero and another and you can mark cash you can mark a bill and say oh this is yeah. you know this is uh this is bad money here but you can't do that with uh, a privacy coin yeah and i and i think importantly too it, it, it takes some effort to get uh, a lot of cash across borders and to move it to move it in kind of a seamless way um and certainly when you're trying to move cash through the financial system or you know you have dirty cash you're trying to move at some point you probably do need to interact with some regulated business somewhere to turn that into something more useful um you know the concern regulators have is you have these privacy coins that allow people to move funds cross border in a seamless way and even though i think you know the volumes are relatively low compared to cash regulators are thinking ahead to well what happens in 10 or 15 or 25 years time if uh, there is 
you know, very substantial volume of trading occurring in privacy coins. That said, you know, it's been a very, very hard issue for regulators to address. And I don't think there's been a clear or even successful response to it quite yet. Um, most regulators have not have not explicitly said that you cannot handle privacy coins. They've sort of left it up to cryptocurrency businesses to demonstrate that they can do that in a compliant way uh, that, that's consistent with regulation and the aims of regulation. And because of that, lots of cryptocurrency exchanges have, have simply chosen not to list privacy coins on their platform uh, for fear that, that they may not be able to comply. So, I mean, it, it is an ongoing discussion and debate uh, across the industry and between industry and regulators. Uh, and I think things like decentralized exchanges sit in a similar place. You know, um, DEX volumes aren't huge compared to sort of centralized exchange volumes yet. But, you know, regulators are certainly thinking, you know, what does this mean for us if you had platforms where there's no central party who, you know, maybe collects customer information or knows what's going on on the day to day basis on the exchange? Uh, what does that mean for the ability of a, you know, criminal to exploit that platform? And the FATF's guidance actually does address those questions, you know, and it does talk a little bit about um, about that. And, and it essentially says if your platform is truly decentralized, you probably shouldn't be regulated because there's no one to regulate uh, if, you, right. if you are decentralized. Um, but, but one thing the FATF did say in its guidance is um, you can't just claim that you're decentralized and that's enough. If you, you can't just call yourself a decentralized exchange and assume that you're not regulated. Well, look, you're not decentralized, Joel. Quit calling yourself decentralized, Joel. You're not. Uh, exactly. <laughs> the Joel Dex. I mean, where are you at, Joel? He's like, well, part of me is in Denver. Part of me is in Utah. I left my heart in San Francisco. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but, you know, it, it's, it, it is, you know, it's a, it's kind of a real thing in, in that, um, you know, someone might set up exchange and say, well, look, you know, we, we don't really have a central party. We're not, we're not, Essentially incorporated in one place, but regulators might look at that and say, "Oh, well, actually, you know, the way you operate, there's points at which you're taking custody of funds, and so you maybe need to be regulated because you're not fully decentralized." And so, so it's certainly kind of an ongoing question. And and as we were talking about before, there there is some debate in various circles among policymakers as to is there a way or, or are there ways in which the regulatory framework needs to change so that it could potentially capture various forms of, of more decentralized activity. And um, that's an ongoing discussion. And, and this is wild. This is, this is endlessly fascinating. I think our audience is really going to enjoy this episode here. And I want to ask you about, so a couple of things. So when did, when did you start with the, uh, with the organization of, with the government? When, when were you doing the anti-terror stuff? Like from what years? Uh, I guess it was what 2007 through about 2006 to about 2012. Yeah. Okay. Have you ever heard the rumor that maybe the NSA created Bitcoin? Because there was a document, there's a document called, uh, that was straight from the NSA called How to Make a Mint in 1996. And if you read through it, the parallels between Bitcoin and cryptocurrency are just spot on for the most part. And there's even somebody in there with the name of like Aaron Sakamoto or something. It's just weird. It's just, you know, you, I don't know if that's not the, or the person's exact name, but it was just something really crazy about that. And it looked like that could be, you know, somebody who was Satoshi or it could have been a group of people because now look at what China's doing. China says, hey, we're banning all anti-blockchain sentiment now. Mm -hmm. And I think blockchain on some ways 
could be this can be the savior of civilization, or it could be the key to unlock authoritarian, you know, behavior with governments because everything has to be on the blockchain. If it's not on there, then you're then there's there's all these different consequences. And so it's interesting to see where things are headed and maybe even the origins of it, because it seems to me that eventually we're going to have an electronic currency of some sort that is the official mandated one of the World Bank of some sort. Like, what are your thoughts on all of that and where we're headed on that? Because it seems like we don't know who created Bitcoin, so we can't really say, yeah, it was Satoshi Nakamoto. Who the hell is Satoshi Nakamoto? That's That's a fake name, right? Was it the NSA? Was it like, what's the long goal? What's the What's the long-term play that we're looking at here? Yeah, I mean, I, I personally don't think the NSA uh, created Bitcoin. I think, um, you know, it was private individual. Have you read that? Have you read that paper? How to make a mint? What's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and but you know, I, I I don't think that's where it originates from. But you know, I think, um, you know, I think there's definitely though a recognition by government governments that this technology is incredibly powerful. And, you know, I think, you know, one of your questions is quite interesting. I, I, you know, at the beginning, it's sort of what does this mean for U.S. policy? And, and you know, you know, the U.S. And, and Europe, you know, other open societies are are probably a little bit slower to think about how can we really harness this technology um, at a more macro level, whereas, you know, countries like China um, and others, you know, that are much more centralized and less open, I think, are, are looking very closely at the technology itself and thinking about, well, how, how can we use this for a number of purposes? And uh, increasingly, there, I think there are components of a, you know, kind of, you know, a little bit of a geopolitical tit for tat that, that's starting to play out. And yeah, it's like, like I, I read that they make now it's like, we're going to set up this blockchain and you're going to now, you know, uh, uh, what are they going to say? Oh, I am a communist. I'm part of the CCP party, and I'm going to place that on the blockchain now to verify that I am that. And like, that's crazy. Like, could you imagine? Like, yeah. I, I am a Democrat. I'm a lime. This, and like, you're on a list now. Have you verified it's on the blockchain? Like, that just just seems weird to me. That that kind of that kind of mandate. Like, declare yourself part of our party officially on the blockchain. Or, or yeah, something. and I mean. And obviously, it runs against the original ethos of what the the technology was designed to do, which was uh, enable decentralization. Um, but certainly, components and facets of the technology are incredibly compelling to governments. And you know, increasingly, we are starting to hear you know members of the U.S. Congress say things like, you know, we really need to start thinking about how we're going to harness blockchain and related technologies in a way that. Um, you know, ensures the U.S. is competitive in, you know, the 21st century and that we're not falling behind other countries like China as they pursue development related to these technologies and are maybe in in a position to do it quite swiftly because, uh, you know, of of the way their governments work. And, you know, I think it's going to be really fascinating to see how it plays out. I I think, you know, the the concurrent sort of proposal that Facebook put forward to launch Libra, which I think is really incredibly exciting in that, you know, it offers the prospect of bringing the technology to a a very wide population in a way it it hasn't been available before. But it's really making governments sit up and think, you know, we can't just sort of pretend that this is going to go away anymore uh, or or hope that it sort of evaporates. 
uh, this, this stuff is here to stay. And, you know, people out there are going to find ways to use this technology. And, and so governments need to find a way to respond, even, including potentially making use of the technology themselves and, and building their own digital currencies that can compete with uh, privately issued ones or privately developed ones. Let's bring this home and talk about an issue that I alluded to at the beginning of this interview, and that is traveling with crypto. Obviously, you know, the government is concerned about going after people that are moving large amounts of of dirty money, uh, dirty crypto, dirty fiat, whatever it is, it needs a bath. But, you know, bringing it home to the regular person if you travel with, say, more than $10,000 in cash, you know, you have to claim that on uh, your customs when you're entering the country. And, and a lot of countries have different laws around that. What about when you're carrying your key for your Bitcoin wallet with you? And let's say you have more than that amount. It gets really sticky here. Just what are your thoughts surrounding this Or if you just know issue? your seed. Like, I don't necessarily have it here, but maybe I know my seed and that, you know. Yeah, well, I mean generally speaking, you know, the, those requirements you refer to that involves, you know, the need to declare cash tend to refer as well to um, the need to declare, you know, monetary instruments as well. So other things that might, you know, be representative of value. So potentially things like crypto. So um, a lot of those requirements can apply to crypto as well. And so, yeah, I mean, in effect, the same requirements can be applied, you know, obviously the, the challenges while, you know, Dogs might be able to <laughs> detect um, ten thousand dollars in someone in someone's uh, bag. You know, they probably couldn't detect a uh, you know a hardware wallet in somebody's. They bag. can't sniff the they can't sniff the seed in my brain. Yeah. Well, and, and not only that, but technically, you could make the case, and I'm sure at some point somebody will, if there's you know arrest for this, that I'm not traveling with Bitcoin. Let's say you've got a hundred thousand dollars in Bitcoin in your hard wallet you could say well it's not actually in there it's on the blockchain i don't have it with me right yeah. well it's good that you i mean it's it's a good point you mentioned this because i mean these are the sort of debates that you know lots of regulators are are having at the moment and you know the response is very country by country and uh you know certain places are trying to figure it out but you know like new zealand like new zealand they can, you arrive in new zealand and they can just grab your devices and start looking for private keys and looking for anything they want on your, before you can come in the country. And if you don't, then they just take your device. I heard. That's cool. I mean, couldn't you say Travis in, in uh, um, David, that if you have a PayPal account with more than it, and it's an app on your phone and it shows your balance or any bank account, wouldn't that be more similar to carrying Bitcoin than carrying any instrument of value? Not necessarily. I, I guess in the sense that, you know, if you think of Bitcoin as a sort of bearer instrument, a bit like cash, you know, whoever's holding it at that moment is who's in possession of it. Um, it's a little bit different from the notion of an, an online account. So um, I think that's how most governments have thought about it. But there are definitely, you know, challenges to detecting it. And um, these are the type of, of questions that, you know, customs and border patrol agencies are, are asking themselves all the time now. So um, these things are very real and live issues and things that governments are grappling with. It's important to note that the um, there's the notion of traveling with crypto, and then there's the travel rule, which is the FATF requirement, which is a separate thing that applies to crypto exchanges now. Um, so two sets of traveling-related issues. Um, 
that potentially apply in the in the crypto space. Mm. I'm going to stick with the traveling Wilburys because they did great music for the short time that they were together. Uh, or well, David, take, or just take seven gold coins with you. There's your ten thousand dollars right there. Yeah, but the the um, I guess one one topic that might just be worth mentioning. You know, we were talking a little bit about before about you know what are regulators expecting from the crypto space and you know the the travel rule that the FATF uh, has implemented is a good example of that. And basically what the travel rule says is that uh, crypto businesses need to send information about who their customers are at the time they transact to other exchanges. So um, if I'm sending funds from my wallet at Coinbase to, you know, Joel, your account, your, your wallet at Binance, then Coinbase needs to tell Binance, you know, David Carlisle is our customer uh, here's some information about him, and then Binance needs to hang on to that information. And that's something banks already do, but crypto businesses have never done it before. And the most recent FAT, FATF guidance says uh, crypto businesses have to do this. And it's called the travel rule because customer data needs to travel with the transaction. But there is this question of, well, can you even do that when you're, the underlying payment ecosystems are decentralized? You know, in the banking world, you whenever banks transact with one another, they know that there's always a bank on another side of a transaction so that they can share information about who their customers are. Cryptocurrency businesses are currently debating with regulators and have debated with regulators whether it's technically possible to achieve that. Some of those debates aside, the FATF said, we expect crypto businesses to comply with this. And so the crypto industry is currently uh, working really hard to try and understand, can we comply with these rules that were designed for the banking sector? Um, but are being, you know, we're being expected to comply with now. And, you know, as a sort of technology provider in the space uh, at Elliptic, we're spending a lot of time looking at things like, can we solve that problem for crypto exchanges? Can we devise solutions to the travel rule that actually would help a crypto business comply in a way that looks a little bit more like what a bank has done historically? So, uh, yeah, these are all sorts of things that are kind of on the table and up for discussion at the moment. And, uh, so there's no shortage of uh, interesting stuff happening <laughs> in uh, in the industry and, and at Elliptic when it comes to you know developments in the regulatory space. Great topics, and you are a wealth of information, David Carlisle, with Elliptic. It's E L L I P T I C dot C O. You could check it out there. And David, we appreciate you joining us today. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. See, Travis, he wasn't calling you a fat F at all. Oh, you know, I was actually just thinking about it. Actually, the first time I didn't know what it was. I didn't know that it was Financial Action Task Force. And actually, we wish we had that song to sing to him when we recorded it, because like, that's a really good. It sounds it's got that cool 80s vibe to it. I'd, I'd watch that show. Well, he'll hear this episode, I'm sure, true. because all the guests like, you know, listening to the episode they were in and then he'll hear this. And now he's going to be walking around the office singing financial action task force. <laughs> well, he's, he's, think, he's a power action task force now. Yeah. So yeah. maybe his friends that are still action task force members, they can sing that song through the hallways and give each other high fives as they do actions. Do you have a song for our sponsor, Moby? Ah, Moby. We do not have a song, but I think it would probably start out like ching boom 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 It's like cash 
boom, 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 boom. You need to transfer money really fast. Boom, boom. <laughs> Moment. Yeah. It's an app. You can use it from anywhere, including taking a crap. <laughs> <laughs> and you get $10 in free MBX Moby Pay tokens just by going to their website at mobypay.io. The winners of the token tank at World Crypticon 2019 was Moby Pay. Mr. Travis Wright, I think that they might call upon you to write their theme song because. Man, that- we might want to collaborate on that, Moby. That could be funny. Mm-hmm. MobyPay.io. That Go was just created right then, folks. That was like live bad jokes. Horrible. Freestyle rap. You wrote a Pink Floyd song right on the spot. That was amazing. <laughs> Pretty impressive, folks. I know. Mm. So that was impressive. And, you know, Crypto Kitties, when it came out a couple years ago, was also really impressive for its time. And I don't know if you've looked recently, but they have really ramped up the design and the features of crypto kitties but there are many who are like yeah but kitties are boring there's like nothing nothing else you could do with them except breed them well now there's some alternatives out there and we've got a crypto spotlight segment for you coming up here this is a sponsored segment of the show just to let you guys know in full transparency we always let you know when we are collecting monies after looking at this project we thought this is entertaining yes we will allow you to sponsor this interview segment come on and tell the Republic of Bad Cryptopia, about your project. We are not making any endorsements or recommendations. As always, do your own due diligence. Do do your own due diligence. And enjoy the segment with John Wolf of Raccoon. First, there were Crypto Kitties. And the Crypto Kitties did dominate the Ethereum blockchain. And crypto people said, well, some think it's good, some think it's not so good because they really clogged the blockchain. But since that time, there have been a number, a lot actually, of games that are springing up utilizing blockchain technology. And we're pleased to have with us a gentleman here with a company called Good Luck 3. Mm-hmm. His name is John Wolf. And John, welcome to Bad Crypto. Thanks for having me. I have listened to this podcast before, and when I was getting into the blockchain space, this was definitely a go-to source. So it's very interesting now, about two years later, to actually be on this show. So I'm honored. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's like it's going to be like you're listening to a podcast, only you're talking. Yeah, right. Like, oh my god, this is my voice on it. (laughs) We've had people in the past, which is always funny to me. It's like not answer our questions because they're like, oh, dude, man, I thought I was just listening to the podcast. I forgot I was actually talking to you. Are you talking to me? Are you talking to me? (laughs) You bozos. Uh, Yeah, we're talking to you. So I'm curious. You got into the blockchain space listening to this show and some other content a couple of years ago, and that's brought you to where you now have, you know, you're working with a company and you're developing blockchain games. When did you decide, hey, it's time to make some stuff? Well, yeah, it's crazy. So uh, Good Luck 3 is a Japanese video game company. And uh, traditionally, they were making uh, just applications, mobile games. Uh, we had a IP for uh, Gudetama, which is, if you know Hello Kitty, everyone's going to know Hello Kitty, right? So we had the IP rights to one of those characters. Mm-hmm. And then CEO was kind of like, hey, we want to pivot and try something new. And then we went over into the blockchain space. And so, you know, me as an interested person in game development was doing this. And then all of a sudden it was like, all right, well, 
Now uh, we have to learn about Bitcoin, Ethereum. We have to learn about blockchain games. And then we kind of just dove into it. Uh, so we were originally a video game studio that made the segue over here. And I was part of that team. And uh, now I kind of uh, run a lot of international operations, do a lot of collaborations for the company, uh, spe specifically with their blockchain products. There you go. Yeah, you know, I'm looking at your white paper right now, and it talks about the Raccoon ecosystem. And just so you guys know, Raccoon, it's it's spelled in one of those new internet ways. It's R-A-K-U-N. It's right. not like a raccoon, like the animal, but it's Raccoon, R-A-K-U-N, and it's about the animal, the pig. So it's confusing. Right. I think it's like, hey, it's raccoon, but it's pigs and it's crypto. Well, it's, uh, it's, there's actually a lot of wordplay going on. So raccoon, again, Japanese company, um, has this has this connotation of being rak raku, which is like comfortable, and un, which means luck. So there's this whole thing about play and relaxation. Ah, comfortable luck. And then krypton is crypto, right? Krypton tone in Japanese is pig. So literally translates to digital pig, crypto pigs. That's why they're called kryptons uh so uh -huh. yeah so you know it's really interesting again the fact that it's a japanese company has all of this going on uh in our products and the culture really does bleed through the, the, the products themselves and so that's why the names are the way they are <laughs> yeah travis don't assume that you know western language is the determination of all the things no i was just trying to help out our listeners when they're trying to search for raccoons and yes. they don't know where the hell to look indeed i, I could tell that you're doing that travis i appreciate that yes raccoon r-a-c-o-n I don't appreciate it when he does that, <laughs> that's uh, okay. but that's fine. The uh, The official website for you guys to check out is raccoonworld.com, R-A-K-U-N world.com. So uh, we took a look at this and we're like, oh, okay, so this is this is entertainment. You're using blockchain, uh, you know, for gaming. And it's like, you know, crypto kitties, you just collect these two-dimensional kitties and you breed them and that's the whole thing but right. it looks like in this game it's three-dimensional and you've got all these different piggies right yeah the cool the cool uh i guess you know competitive advantage I mean, put that aside for a second but just you know the element the fact that we are originally a game studio allows us to kind of focus more on quality right here you know you're now finding blockchain games getting to the space that are doing 3d and most of those are western uh video game companies but we originally were the first Japanese blockchain game and also decided to do 3D. And so, yes, the creatures are three, you know, three dimensional and you don't you can you can do more than just breed them and uh, sell them via Ethereum. You can also put them in an actual 3D race. So it's kind of like this. Imagine Mario Kart on the blockchain, because if you if you look at some of the races or if you look at some of the videos I kind of sent over or just go to the website and play yourself, you will see that you actually have the creatures that you are raising uh, go against other players, Krypton. And then if they win, then you get special prizes for that. And uh, that's kind of how our ecosystem is working. And then Raccoon is plugged into that to allow you to have more incentive to be able to win Raccoon tokens and things of that nature. So, so you have this whole ecosystem with Raccoon. And as you described, it's a you know, Japanese Raccoon. It's pretty interesting. And this is, you guys are building the, you know, the goal is the future of gaming. So right now is you have the, the Crypto Inc., which is the crypto piggy type things that can race. But it looks like you have virtual sports, virtual fantasy, advent, virtual adventure games, and media, and some other stuff going on. So what is the whole platform uh, aimed to do? Because it seems like you're not just talking about this one game. You're talking about an ecosystem. Right. So entertainment uh, is really what it's trying to, or what we're trying to accomplish. Another product that we just released actually last Monday was called the Oink Book which is a uh, entertainment blog and a kind of a diary actually, because yes. And so you go onto this 
you go onto this platform and then write articles, kind of similar to Steemit, right? Proof of, not proof of stake, proof of brain. Uh, so you go on and you end up writing articles and those articles end up getting liked and comments end up generating these raccoon tokens. So it's all about having this engagement and this, this quality community that ends up rewarding you for uh, your participation. And all these things are supposed to be fun in nature. So the Oink book's okay. supposed to be you know, casual. People on there are writing poems about pigs and individuals are liking that and commenting on that. And so that's one product, right? So there's that one product that we have that's actually launched right now that's connected with the Raccoon engine. Mm -hmm. and, and I am in it right now. I just got, I just uh, logged into my MetaMask. I was on Chrome, logged into that on the homepage, cryptoink.io. Nice. Boom, it pops up. Howdy, newcomer. Welcome to Cryptoink Racing Friends. That's what I'm talking about. So I just did my first race while you were talking there. Okay. Kind of, I like the uh, the tutorial that, you know, brings you through. There's kind of like, uh, do this, now do this, now try this. And it's, it's not just, okay, uh, click it and go. There's interactivity here, right? I got a little boost thing. I've got a little item that I can equip. I've got, you know, going left and right. So this, this is actually a little arcadey with like an RPG element to it. Yeah, I mean, I'm very glad that you said all those things. I'm glad I'm very glad you also liked the tutorial. Uh, you can also play it on mobile. You can download it from the App Store for either Android or iOS, and you're able to actually play the same game over there on you know your mobile device. Uh, what it does is that we actually give you a wallet, and then you can go ahead and continue to play and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you guys are, are digging it and finding it fun because again, as as a as a game company, we want to be sure we have elements of play, not just necessarily leveraging the blockchain. Yeah, gaming. And th there's there's quests here. You've gamified the game, right? I see yeah, the yeah. login bonus, right. and there, there's quests each day, and you get items. And so, am I going to get to race against real people with their piggies? Yeah. So currently, you're on level one. Once you get to level uh, four, you'll enter leagues. And so leagues will, you'll end up having a ranking, you know, you'll probably be placed, uh, you, there's thousands of players. So let's just say you'll end up being like, you know, 5,000, something like that, or maybe 4,000, who knows. And uh, you'll end up being in leagues with people that are in the same ranking as you. And then you'll end up playing against those individuals. Leagues are four, five weeks long. And then we end up having a, uh, a crypto, a crypto derby, which uh, then puts the top six players within that league against each other. And then they win a grand prize. And so we do leagues. Uh, season one is currently underway. And then we also have regular, you know, off the cuff races, um, which have special uh, requirements. So, you know, you have an egg ton, that's what you have. But, you know, if you end up getting your own crypto and you look inside the marketplace or go on OpenSea and look, you'll see cryptos have afros, they have silk hats, they have all these, you know, ridiculous features. And so sometimes we'll have races that require you to have those type of uh, features in order to participate. I, I find it interesting now. It's actually I'm doing my, my first race. Right now, and he's got he's the pig. He's got his, he's got his little the half of the other half of the shell still on there because he's this is his first race. What did yeah. you name your pig, Travis? Uh, he's named uh, Little Piggy. <laughs> Little Piggy, yeah, that's good. Yeah, it's like the Beatles. It's a Beatles reference. All right, so here we go. Okay, that's my pig. Little Piggy's uh, oh, Little Piggy's behind. Oh, Matsuri. Oh, Matsuri's on the side. Oh, here he goes. <laughs> he's a quarter back behind. Around, come around here we go. Right now, oh, man. he's getting ready to go around the corner. Oh. I don't know. Whoa, he's fast. I need a turbo boost. We'll go ahead and hit that turbo boost. Can, he, can Travis hit that turbo boost button in time? Yes, he does. Turbo oh, okay. boosting. Oh, here and comes little Piggy. Put a little kick in its steppy. Here go. he goes, Piggy. Go, Piggy, go. <laughs> oh, there's turning around the corner. There's three. There's the three arrows. You can see them. Oh, here comes another little notification. Not bad, right? That's right. Hit this thing. Stamina's going down. Get the stamina up. Ooh. Oh. Oh. 
This is exciting. As well, if, if Piggy doesn't win, I mean, he's dinner, right? I mean, that's so. As I was as I was mentioning before, is that we actually have this. Uh, our CEO um, is quite an interesting visionary, and so in Japan, unfortunately, we can't do this for our American uh, players. Is that uh, we have a meat lovers cup, and so the person who actually wins, we actually own a pig farm. Yes. And so the winners of that competition, or the winner of the competition, actually gets this Krypton meat that actually uh, is, 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 you know, delivered to their house. And actually, I've, I've eaten it before. It's actually pretty good. So they, they, it's possible they can actually become pork. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, so you guys have an existing company. Yep. Um, I won! I won! Oh! Oh, so yeah, proud of you. So, so proud of you, Travis. So this is a Japanese game, and so, but it's available, you know, for people in the West to play as well. There's definitely some differences between the East and the West in terms of the genres, in terms of design. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about those differences. Okay. Well, games in general, you know, game culture, uh, for sure. This is something I mean, I was I've always I was always interested in video games. That's why I moved to Japan and actually learned Japanese and got into the industry was because of this. And so over in, you know, the West here, we enjoy games that are kind of more like, you know, Call of Duty and uh, individuals and games that are all about us, you know, excelling and and getting ahead. While over in Japan, it's more community oriented. It's all of us together uh, fighting an external enemy. Um, that speaks to the culture at length, but in terms of games, Pokemon and, you know, Dragon, uh, Dragon Quest Warriors are very popular, their Final Fantasy is popular, and then we have, again, like I said, Call of Duty and GTA, etc., etc. So in the blockchain game space, which again is, is really bustling right now, uh, I think, you know, in Q3 there was over three, nope, nope, 2.2 billion dollars that were made in transactions. Right now you're seeing that, again, for games that are made over in Asia, that are in Korea, Vietnam, and Japan. A lot of them are more uh, quest-oriented, as you mentioned earlier, and you know, kind of more cutesy. Axe Infinity is another great one, and uh, Ethereum on was another great one, uh, and they all focus in My Crypto Heroes, another great one. And so they're all focused on you know game elements and really small characters. Where what's going on now is that now that companies over in the West are now getting onto it, they're using uh, Unity, the Unity engine, which is so powerful, using 3D, and then making more of these kind of uh, more uh, violent or action-oriented games in which those guns or those grenades or whatever can be traded amongst users, and that's the ERC-721 or uh, 1155 element. So it's really interesting how that's going on right now, and uh, we kind of, again, are focusing on the cuteness aspect of it, um, kind of more of like a Pokemon feel um, with these 3D characters. Mm. You know, I was thinking when I first saw this whenever we were talking with the team about having you on the show, um, I looked at this and I, the very first thing that I thought of when I was like, you know what, this would actually, I mean, pigs, I was like, eh, I don't, I personally, as an American, I don't, I don't get the pig thing. And now you've described the crypto ink, but I said, you know what, this would be really kick-ass at, it's like, it's not the crypto kitties. It would be crypto horses. Like how yeah. cool would it be to have horses yeah. and then crypto horse racing, right. because then you could say, oh, I'm going to breed this Clydesdale horse with this horse and oh look right. how fast this horse is and now it's in the horse racing and it's Churchill Downs and the whole horse racing you yeah. know history behind that that could act I was like dude that could actually be really cool yeah so it's sort of an evil you know but the but the foundation that you guys have with this blockchain game ecosystem that sounds like that's just putting a new face on top of your engine Precisely. and and rocking and rolling with it 
Yeah, I mean, if that's something that could really, you know, hit uh, foreign markets more. And again, we want to be able to make a push uh, to get individuals like yourselves. Yeah, gambling and horse racing. You can have people gambling. Yeah. You can have people betting on people's horses and stuff. No, I, I, I completely hear you. Um, you got a vir- you got a virtual, you got a whole other business over there that nobody's done yet. You have you have to be sensitive about it, though, because, again, um, when it comes to betting, uh, you, especially when it comes to betting with cryptocurrencies, the uh, Japanese government is very sensitive about that. So we can't. Well, they don't have to be betting in Jap- Japan. Precisely, precisely. It's available in certain countries, yeah. they could. I got you. No, I completely, I completely hear you. Um, and some of the races that we have coming up, you know, we have an Ether Cup. So we end up giving individuals that end up winning, you know, Ether for winning. And then also now that we have the Raccoon Token coming forth, is that that also gives us another avenue to be able to reward players with something that is, you know, more real. So I understand the betting aspect. I understand the fact you want people to be able to do that. And that is something we want to be able to move in the direction of. And let's as, as we finish up here, let's talk about the token. Why is this blockchain based and what is the benefit of the token? Well, I, so the fact that it's going to end up being its own economy, right? You already have the Oink book and you already have this uh, other, you also have cryptoin going on, other in, other projects we want to add onto the platform is that it gives people the advantage of, I mean, the cool thing about blockchain games is that you're finding a way to be able to allow individuals to actually make earnings from playing in the digital realm, playing, bringing things from the realm of the abstract into the realm of the concrete. And so by allowing players to be able to physically, not physically, well, digitally, but more tangibly sense that by having a token that's rewarded to them for either playing in the game or participating on the Oink book or the other things uh, and having that come into real world value, rather than just being intrinsic, uh, we think is really appealing. So again, again, ERC-721 as it is right now, if you like my Krypton, then you're going to give me Ethereum for it. Okay. But also now we can make it so that the more play that you do in the game, the more that we can reward you. And then that token itself will then be transferred into either another game that you can use or into actual, you know, fiat as you go through the exchange and all that. Other it's like having a, a, this one token that can that can be utilized across your game ecosystem, because yeah. your game network, right? Powered by this thing, precisely, exactly. Raccoon powered. If you go on the Oink book, it says, you know, powered by Raccoon. So um, it's really trying to create an ecosystem, which all you know, a lot of blockchain platforms are um, doing. And you need to be able to have things onside your platform. You need to have utilization, and you need to have circulation. We just wanted to be able to have this token in there so that we can really associate people's interactive activity on our platform with some type of value. And it's exciting for, for us to be able to do that because, again, you know, you don't see too many uh, companies um, really either, either have the products or are able to actually do IEOs. I'm sorry, or able to actually have tokens. So something that we're really looking forward to being able to actually have out there within the very near future. Well, the IEO taking place on Liquid, you'll find links to it in the show notes for this episode. You guys know where to locate that. Uh, I just want to say I did another race while you guys were talking, and I was able to pick a helper pig. And I just want to let you know his name was Dickhead. So, uh, but but Dickhead did not help me win uh, because he was a dickhead. He was a dickhead, yeah, of course. Figures. Uh. Uh, you guys check it out, Raccoon World, R-A-K-U-N world.com. If you want to play the game, go to www.crypt-oink.io. Again, links in the show notes. John Wolf, good luck with the project. Good luck three with the project. Thank and you thanks, thanks again. Yes. Thank you. Have you seen the crypto piggies rolling in the dirt? And for all those crypto piggies, 
Life is getting worse. <laughs> Crypto is that, is that it? I don't know. There's no. I don't know the more lyrics to that. Okay. Uh, a Beatles reference there. So I need to add Pink Floyd's "Money" and the Beatles' "Piggies." to the uh the bad crypto playlist if you're not familiar with it we build this playlist anytime there's a song reference a lyric is referenced a melody is referenced if you go to spotify at badco.in forward slash spotify you will find the bad crypto playlist with the um plethora of songs that have been mentioned on the show we hope you guys enjoy just a little bonus that you get from bad cryptopia I mean, who else would give that to you? Mm. Nobody. Actually, if you go actually, Joel, Mr. Joel, uh, if you go to badco.in forward slash Spotify, that takes you to our Spotify channel. Oh, that okay. So it's probably badco.in forward slash playlist. Try that, Mr. Travis, right? I'll bet you that will take you to the playlist. It is really cool to see Bad Crypto on Spotify. It's, we've been on there for like a year and a half, but that was really cool. We were one of the first crypto peoples on there. Let's see. Boom, there it is. The Bad Crypto song list. Badco.in forward slash playlist. How many songs are on here so far? Uh, it looks like 45, even though we've referenced many more because we didn't start doing this until August mm-hmm. of this year. So all the songs that were previously referenced, uh, sometimes you guys will let us know if you hear an old episode and you're like, oh, in this episode you did this song, then, you know, let us know and we can add that to the uh, the playlist. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. 45 songs. It's actually, if you look at it and you just play it and like on shuffle, there's a bunch of really great songs on there. Yeah, so some of you are like, oh, every time I get in the car, you know, go to work, you guys keep me company, but you're only on three days a week, and then there's those other two days, and and I miss you so much, it hurts me in my heart place. I'm like, well, listen to the Bad Crypto song list, <laughs> and it'll just remind you of all the lols and crypto chewy, crunchy goodness that we have here. It hurts me in my heart place. <laughs> that could be a song. Oh, that, that sounds like a country song. <laughs> that does, doesn't it? Hurt me in my heart place. Hurt me in my heart place. It was a hard place to be. <laughs> then you All right. my heart, uh, I'm going to get us out of here right now, everybody. No, thanks for mind. listening. And so violated. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Stay bad. The Bad Crypto Podcast is a production of Bad Crypto, LLC. The content of the show, the videos, and the website is provided for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. It's not intended to be and does not constitute financial, investment, or trading advice of any kind. You shouldn't make any decisions as to finances, investing, trading, or anything else based on this information without undertaking independent due diligence and consultation with a professional financial advisor. Please understand that the trading of Bitcoin's and alternative cryptocurrencies have potential risks involved. Anyone wishing to invest in any of the currencies or tokens mentioned on this podcast should first seek their own independent professional financial advisor. You hurt me in my hard place. It was plain to see. That baby, you know I loved you. 
but now I'm in misery. Only three episodes a week of Bad Crypto Podcast, you know. But if you decide you want to hear some more, well, this is what you got to do, boy. That doesn't rhyme at all. Tune in the spot. There's a two Your lyrics hurt me in my hard place. They really do suck. That's right. And they sure ain't in my smart place. Because that place ain't been found. That doesn't rhyme with fuck. <laughs> you know, your rhyming place hasn't been found. I figured you'd be like, and I don't give up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, you hurt me in my heart place, sweetheart. Now you're not going to touch my mouth part. <laughs> That's funny. All right. I'm going to get on my go-kart. All right. Are you done? <laughs> Who's bad?